0: to the Shining Light Podcast. I'm Pastor Sam. I'm Patrick. No compromise with Evil Wyatt. And today we have a special guest with us. We have Thomas Littleton. Thomas, how are you doing?
1: Doing well and really been looking
2: forward to being back with you guys
0: again. Thanks for the invite. That was what I was going to say is welcome back,
1: Thomas. Uh, Wish you were with us again live like last time, but we'll, we'll take you by phone if we have to. Okay, good. Well,
2: next it's better than nothing and maybe we'll get back together face to face
0: and hope that happens yeah you, you know uh i think what would be best is that you know if you avoided that that southern winter cuz it's just so terrible down there oh, yeah. it's so warm and uh, and everything and no snow and if you came up north and a lot of people from the
1: south come up to iowa for, for the, the winter, winter. Yeah. yeah
0: it's just wonderful up here <laughs> yeah, that's here, I, I hear that it's just—I mean, by by April, you guys only have two feet of snow. its, it's uh, you're in the Big Thaw, and we're, we're already at the beach down here. So, oh boy, that that'd be uh, terrible to—I yeah, mean, think your about the sun. The really not floating here. for me, so. well,
1: we don't have to worry about um, you know heat stroke here in January, February. So that's one of the things
0: that keeps yeah. me here. Uh, as a yeah, redhead. But on the bright side. <laughs> yeah. It, as a redhead, that sunburn's pretty rough on me, so I, I I try to stay away. <laughs> uh, well, well, today we're going to talk about a uh, a little bit of a different topic. We're going to be looking at some solutions uh, for what's ailing the the church as a whole today. But before we can get to those solutions, we do have to talk about some of uh, the problems. And, and Thomas, if you could just list, you know, uh, your your top three to five uh, problems that you see within the church today.
2: Well, uh, there is a, a weakening in, in, in general of the gospel vision, and, you know, we talk about the social justice movement and how things really have been ramping up in that area. Uh, what's being lost in that whole uh, shuffle and narrative uh, that we're seeing uh, develop around uh, equality and justice is the real vision of the gospel, and that is transformation of hearts and um that, you know, people who are redeemed are new creatures in Christ. They're not just adopting a new perspective or a new worldview. And unfortunately, that kind of transformation is being lost. Uh, even offering that kind of transformation uh, is being lost. Um, also, I think we're seeing a huge shift in, the, um, in church polity, and that is how the church is run uh, there's virtually no emphasis on the on individual faith and the priesthood of the believer, which, as a Southern Baptist, was the uh, you know the centerpiece uh, of uh, you know what Baptist uh, really stand for. Churches have autonomy, and every believer has autonomy as a king and a priest unto God. We're seeing that shift, and the churches are no longer uh, congregational-led. They are led by a hierarchy of, really, CEOs who claim elder status and claim the biblical authority over the believers. So I think we have a major crisis uh, brewing. Uh, It's not on the surface yet, but it's just under the surface, and that's the shift in church polity, and that they are corrupting. The responsibility of the individual believer, then uh, the importance of individual faith, and then their lording over the church and over the flock, and uh, and right down to telling them how to vote. And I can tell you, I could show some examples of this, but um, that leaves me to the third point, I guess, of the thirty things you you, you know you ask. Um, the third would be the church's politics. Uh, And some people would just shudder to think about, you know, uh, that being uh, considered that important. But as far as life in America, religious freedom, the ability for us to pass on the heritage that we've had spiritually to our children, the ability for men to stand in the pulpit and preach the whole counsel of God, uh, that's been celebrated through uh, the guarantees that we have of individual rights and religious freedom. Uh, and that's very much uh, at, um, at odds with this uh, uh, narrative of uh, a post-Christian culture and uh, the need to live uh, and embrace uh, principled uh, pluralism. And we need to look at what essentially is a third way to come in the middle and find common ground, in essence, for us not to uh, vote and enter, you know, engage the culture uh, especially on the political front through uh, biblical conviction, but through uh, more of a big kumbaya uh, embrace and fireside uh, chat with uh, all the progressives of the world. and I do believe that is a big threat, uh, not just to the church, but to America and the way of life that we know as a whole, because as we see those values and, and uh, voting convictions um, uh, undermine even – uh, single issue pro-life voting being actively undermined, then you see this justice voter as I'm calling it uh, replace the convicted christian who's standing up even when he goes to the polls and uh, and then willing to hold um, you know the, those that they vote for accountable for the promises they've made so you know but a lot of those pressures from the outside that the church
1: and individual Christians can make are important and we're seeing that Evaporate. Well, it's interesting that they are very politically savvy in the church by trying to convince us there's no real difference between Republican and Democrat party. Even though Democrat party just came out and said we passed a resolution we are the party of of the irreligious. And, of course, they didn't have to pass a resolution to show me that. Their their words, deeds, and actions over the past decades have shown me that. But, they, you know, they made it official. But uh, in the church, they, they try to get us to say, well, uh, yeah, the Democrat, if they, they realize, somebody like Hillary Clinton, she's no good. Um, but, but the, the Republican is no good either, so maybe you best ought to sit it out. And just what you said, uh, the vast majority of people they're talking to would tend to vote for the conservative or the Republican candidate. And if they can get uh, the, everybody to stay home, this ultimately hurts the, the Republican Party far more than the Democrat Party because the Democrat Party, there's not a whole lot of people, at least in the conservative circles, going to vote for them anyway. Right. And,
2: and I think we're seeing just at the room filled with that kind of talking points. And uh, this is coming from you know, the, the, you know, the usual suspects, the Gospel Coalition and their media outputs, uh, Christianity Today, uh, and uh, to a lesser degree other uh, Christian um, media, but, uh, but also from some of the guys like the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, uh, which I happen to notice now has 32 employees. I don't know if you saw the tweet I made about that. No drew a lot of discussion, but these guys are supposed mm. to be protecting all that and helping Christians uh, identify, you know, um, conservative biblical values in their voting, and instead they're getting very kind of talking points you're talking, you know, that you've
0: mentioned, Patrick. Yeah, well, and, and one thing I've noticed, too, about the politics is it's they've kind of progressed to a point, imagine that the progressives progressing. progressing, <laughs> uh, they progressed to a point yeah. where it's no longer saying stay at home, but now it's saying you can vote for a Democrat. Uh, Jonathan Lehman uh, and Mark Devers did kind of a little sit down and, and talked about that uh, with saying you can vote for somebody who cares about lives outside the border, um, because that's just as important as somebody who uh, cares for lives inside the womb. And and of course, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with that. And we broke that down before, but
1: criminal aliens versus unborn babies. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're about the same. Yep. <laughs> well, what you've got to do,
2: you know, too, is help remind, uh, you know, viewers that it's important to remember these guys are also operating in a realm where there's billions of uh, Soros and other guys' dollars available yep. for those who uh, who uh, back the narrative that they're promoting and help change the church's views to embrace, uh, you know, Muslim migration and these other um issues that were set in motion during the last administration. So, uh, you know, it would have to be really, really stupid uh, or, vi- or very naive. And I think there's some of both, you know, to take these uh, narratives. Uh, and I've challenged Lehman on some of his talking points about voting for uh, Democrats, saving saving babies by voting for Democrat because they're supporting more welfare, which may in the long run actually save babies. And um, he walked away from that foolish set of talking points because he knew it was indefensible. It was just part of the rhetoric. And uh, he wasn't ready to go to the map for that at all, but he and Bever had sat there in one of them's office and, you know, and driven those talking points out to the whole, uh, you know, Nine Marks and TTC community. And it's fake. It's dishonest, and um, you know, and uh, you know, if Christians are going to stand on one issue, you know, culturally, it would be life and uh, the value of life, pro-life. Uh, and I know a lot of those older people who were involved in the pro-life movement uh, then, and they knew that that was a, a, a movement and an issue that should crystallize all professing believers, whatever other differences they had. They would value human life in the womb, especially the most innocent and vulnerable. And uh, trying to dilute that is not a godly task. Uh, these guys are taking on.
0: Yeah, that's that, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you, you know, one thing I've often thought about is how can we how can we really have eternal life right if we can't even figure out uh, physical life? And <clears throat> in, in when I think about it in that sense. It really makes me kind of stop and wonder uh, when these these guys are are saying you can go and vote for those who aren't pro-life. I, I know it's harsh for me to say, but it really it really makes me question their their salvation, uh, even with this as, as they go out and they're they're claiming to be uh, leaders and, and different things like that. But that topic itself,
1: pro-life, it's indicative of how they vote on other things and the rest of their life and their spiritual state. Um, It's not like they're just maybe bad on that, but really good on other things. Typically, you're going to find a consistency with evil, and that being the tip of the iceberg a lot of times. If they're voting to to murder babies, um, right on down the line, um, God's view of of human sexuality, His moral authority also is tossed away Mm -hmm. because at this very basic point, they've destroyed their understanding of the Bible, and they're trying to destroy the understanding of other people of the Bible
2: yeah that's an excellent point. and And what this does to uh, the broader um, you know issue of human rights, you know and individual rights, if there's no respect for the most vulnerable, then there's no respect for life and human rights at all, whatever else they say. And you know a lot of what we're in in, in the midst of with this uh, human rights discussion globally, Uh, Most of these guys who are pushing abortion as big as they are, you know, and justice as big as they are, are globalists. And Mm -hmm. from their activist perspective approaching human rights and human dignity, uh, they see that the current narrative as a deconstruction tool to uh, essentially eliminate all human rights and empower government. And, you know, the common good is uh is is more important than the individual and uh you know there are collectivist ideologies reflected in every uh, way in these narratives and the sad part is you see preachers like tim keller uh ed stetzer and a a variety of these guys embracing that very same narrative and uh Salvation is experienced with the individual and 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 then enjoyed with the body of Christ and the collective. But uh, what they're what they're talking about and then echoing these kind of points, like it takes a village or it takes the church, you know, to really be your family and raise your kids. Uh, this is all an attack on the uh, on the nuclear family as God established it and the parental rights, uh, family rights, and. Uh, all the laws, basically, within our land that are framed to protect those rights, and uh, we're in some really, you know, slippery slopes, sandy uh, soil on this stuff, and most Christians are completely unaware of it, uh, but once it hits, then we're going to realize what's already been lost and through these uh, efforts to redefine what those mean, and it all starts with disrespecting life in the womb.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Thomas. and. You you know I th- I think about it here because of course with uh, what you just said we've we've said that and echoed those those points too and uh, of course the response of the the leftists today are well you just have family idolatry um, I, I believe the Gospel <laughs> Coalition put out a couple things on that. Uh, but, but, you know, we, you're talking about the, the problems that we have here. We, we see these issues, uh, social justice creeping in. We see uh, the politics uh, of where the church is. And the other one you mentioned too, which I thought was pretty interesting, uh, is the, um, the, the, that we're lacking autonomy as a church, and we're lacking that individual soul liberty and the priesthood of the believer uh, today. And we're, we're really going more as, as to a corporate uh, salvation and corporate decisions and a CEO style uh, within the church—the
1: business model seeker-friendly church. Peter Drucker,
0: right? <laughs> yep. uh, but but this brings me to a question: How in the world do we fix what's going on? What what is the 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 remedy here for what is ailing the church today? Well, it, it's interesting because. You know
2: this is time proven and it's so uh so simple that it would probably insult the average uh you know pseudo-christian intellectual or or person who thinks they're uh you know feigns themselves some type of uh, deep thinker theologian uh is we just need to get back to the simplicity that is in christ and to the reality that the Christian faith is actually coming to uh, to new life, new birth in Christ. And that what our job is then as the church is to disciple people in that new birth that they've experienced and to see to it that they began to move toward uh, growing in, in uh, grace and and growing in favor with God, growing in obedience and fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Uh, my son and I are studying through um, Proverbs right now, and we keep coming back to that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, we don't need all this discussion about uh, how evolution fits with creation. We simply need to understand the foundation uh, you know, of, the, of, of knowledge and understanding is to fear The first book I read as a new Christian, it's so uh, fundamental to laying that foundation and then beginning to build on it. And so we need to get back to Jesus and we need to get back to those very basic things, which is, uh, um, you know, prayer, prayer. Uh, evangelism, and making disciples. And, you know, the church really, when it's at its best, is when it's doing those very simple commands that Jesus left us with.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting when you were talking, Thomas, I was thinking, right along with what you said, I think the problem with a lot of people is, they're reading all kinds of books, and they're reading the latest from Keller or Gospel Coalition or Russell Moore, whomever, and that's what they're reading, and that's what they're following, and their Bible's sitting there closed and dusty, they're not reading their Bible. And that's that's what they should be, if they were reading their Bible, they'd be able to throw away a lot of the stuff that they are reading because they would have the standard of truth to compare this garbage to and see that it's not right, and then they would have the discernment to say, wait a minute, but yeah, we, we need to get back to our Bibles. Open those folks, open your Bibles, put whatever you're reading down and make sure you're reading your Bible every day, and everything else should be supplemental. You know, when you yeah, didn't... I was teaching an adult Sunday school class uh, back when all of
2: the, um, <clears throat> I think there were about 80 people in it, and this is when Rick Warren's Purpose Driven uh, Life oh book was everywhere, and everybody was studying it, and they kept bugging me, like, we need to study that book, we need to study that book, and I said, I finally asked for a show of hands, how many of you feel adequate in your knowledge of the Word of God? And, of course, no one raised their hands. I said, well, when we get there, then we can look at maybe doing somebody's book. But I said, you know, the other thing is, I have a friend who's really witty. He said, you know, it's kind of like going to the restaurant and eating the menu. You know, uh, why would you want to read someone else's description of of the Word of God instead of reading the Word of God? I mean, go for the steak. Uh, and, And that's the whole principle that we see repeated over and over in the scripture, that God has called us all to have that same access.
1: Well, that which you're ignorant of has no power or authority over your ability to think and see lies. So if Satan can keep us distracted with the latest celebrity pastor book, uh, we never will understand exactly what's going on.
0: You, you know, there is one, yep. one book, though, that I, I definitely would read after my Bible reading, and, and that is uh, Social Injustice. And you can find that at socialinjustice.com and use code Thomas or Tom uh, to get a uh, free audio book with that. Uh, <laughs> I just had to do a shameless plug. <laughs> that was
2: really smooth. You just slid that right in there,
1: Sam. <laughs> and it's my understanding that, that you have a chapter in this book. that That's, uh, that's, that's worth the coverage charge right there.
2: Yeah, well, you know, my chapter's kind of wordy. I think I went about 2,500 words over uh, what I was asked to do, but I'm asked to uh, address the LGBT topic uh, and how it's affecting the church and some of the things behind it. And unfortunately, we can't even get that right. You know, we can't even get sexuality right. We're, we're trying to flirt with these narratives that Jesus suffered transgender temptations and had... Uh, you know, gender dysphoria, while he suffered on the cross, and all this obscene and absurd stuff. And we're talking about Robbie Zacharias and and Sam Alberry, who's an editor for the Gospel Coalition. I mean, and how did this happen? You know, and so I go into that in the book and some of the origins of this um, insane rhetoric and the idea of the church even adopting the language of LGBT is all driven by this justice movement because suddenly homosexuality is not something to be overcome through the blood of jesus uh it's something that uh is a perpetual state of struggling and then suddenly is a a victim status that uh, needs to be addressed through the justice lens and so that's you, you can see through the you know that chapter in the book that, uh, this has been a key role, uh, played a key role in pushing, driving the social justice narrative. Plus wherever you find the egalitarian movement and feminist theology, you will always find, uh, the homosexual agenda in, in companionship with it. And the same is true with the radical racial narratives. These things always go hand in hand. So, um, you know, you can't expose one without exposing the other because, uh, uh,
0: they're all running together. Yeah that's that's absolutely right. Satan loves to uh, entwine uh, his, his lies together and, and weave them together so that uh, you, you don't really know uh, at first what he's pushing, uh, but he's always pushing something.
1: Um, at various times you know it's interesting that only in this time in church history, 2,000 years of the church, have we finally come so low as we would actually start embracing this stuff. This was stuff that was part of cultures that the church was was in, but in actively persecuting the church, but the church never gave in to this level of evil until our day.
0: Right, yeah, and that's a signpost
1: for, yes.
0: for sure. You, you know, as we were uh, talking about uh, what topic to, to go over in this podcast, uh, one passage of Scripture that you, you sent me, here, Thomas was uh, Ephesians chapter four, and uh, specifically verses thirteen through twenty-four. But I really think verse thirteen uh, has a lot of insight here for us, and and you might want to expound upon that a little bit. It says, uh, "Till we we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature the fullness of Christ." And I really think that that key part there is uh, uh, of the, the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, how how can that help the church today? Focusing in on uh, on that, and and even you know broader than uh, than that, but looking at the the whole passage uh, as a as a whole, there.
2: Well, the most phenomenal event that happened uh, in human history was the incarnation, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That moment when John the Baptist, and as he had gathered all those people there at the, at the Jordan hearing him, was able to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The curtain was pulled back, and uh, though he'd lived hidden you know, for, for a lifetime, he brought that perfect life there, that sinless life, and then was baptized of John, and then God testified. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, God marks time and eternity in that moment. And Jesus comes on the scene and God declares him pleasing to him. Not after three and a half years of ministry, but just when he comes on the scene. Because it was that sinless life, that, that untainted blood offering that was going to be offered on the cross. That's the moment, the pivotal moment, that changes all of humanity, that offers hope for the future, that offers regaining all that was lost in the garden. And, uh, you know, as Hebrews says, he's the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of his person. The goal of the Christian faith is to know Jesus. And my favorite verse in the in the Bible is from John 17. Uh, that we might know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and he sent, that's Jesus' own prayer for us. And, you know, that's the big uh, priestly chapter, and he talks about the unity of us being one with the Father, even as he is one with the Father, we'd be one in him. And that's the message of Ephesians 4. It's this, this big unity chapter, and if we have that understanding of who God is, And that Christ risen gives us the great hope that Christ in you is the hope of glory. That we can be Christians not because we believe a set of facts, but we can be Christians because now Christ lives in us. When when we repent and come to faith, there's a miracle that happens. There's an infusion of the life of God in us. That's what salvation is. And honestly, I think we're living in a time when... Many who profess Christ and believe they are saved have no idea what that means. And they can't mm-hmm. give even the most remote testimony to that because they haven't experienced it. That's what we're losing, so that's what needs to be restored. And interestingly, this idea of unity, you know, Paul is telling, um, um, you know, in, in the book of Ephesians, making it clear there's there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, And and one God who's Lord over all of us. And how do these, looking through that lens, how can we go and distinguish uh, between same-sex attracted or uh, African-American or um, male versus female when the call is not to this disunity and individual identity, but to the single identity of the new person in Christ? And so we're actually working against the very unity that God has called us to in this entire justice narrative and and identifying all these victims. And really, we don't need justice, we need mercy. If we get justice, we're all in trouble. And, you know, this is not a justice gospel, it's a mercy gospel. So uh, all that's found in Jesus. And that may have been a lot more answer than you wanting, but um, uh, I think that's why just to return to this reality in Christ of who, of who he is and knowing him is so powerful.
1: I don't think you can give us too much answer, Thomas. I think yeah. <laughs> we, we like to hear what you got to say.
0: Uh, absolutely. And uh, appreciate it. And, and, you know, one, one thing that I, I, I think about, because uh, I'm sure that when we present this solution here, and, and I think this is the, the absolute right solution here, a return to the Bible, a return to prayer, a return to evangelizing, a return to uh, making disciples of Jesus Christ, I'm sure what we'll hear is uh, that the, the guys at the Gospel Coalition, the guys at Nine Marks, the, the, the guys at Acton Institute, the guys at, at the Kern Family Foundation or, or all these places, I'm sure what we'll hear is that they do read the Bible, uh, that they do pray, that they are evangelizing, that they are making disciples. Uh, but one thing that, that, that comes to my mind, especially when it comes to Bible reading, is that it's not just simply to read our Bible for the sake of reading our Bible. It's the sake that we read the Bible so that we might know him and know him more. And, and I think that this is where it's just so vital, just what you're talking about, Thomas. It's, it's all about knowing Christ and knowing him more and growing closer to him and our relationship with him. Uh, and that is the, the true solution here.
2: Yeah, and, you know, God didn't make this uh, complex. It's actually very simple, and uh, there's there's a lot of lessons in the Gospels, uh, and, you know, most of them are in very, very simple form, and you see some indications of greater mysteries that are cloaked even from the Twelve and from the... You know the immediate circle of disciples. You know Jesus said, "I have many things to, to say to you, but you can't bear them all." Now, part of that was the you know the fuller story of redemption and what He had come to do, because they were looking for you know the the tangible and the earthly benefits, and He had a um, a lot of focus on translating their expectations to eternity. And if I had to identify one great need in the heart of every christian today i would say it, it that it would be to have a fresh grasp of eternity because if we do then we're not going to get lost in these foolish uh, notions of you know that are driven by dominion theology and, and uh, the idea that we're going to redeem culture actually we're to stand in contrast to it and uh, you know, and then uh, if anything, you know, we're we're to see the authority of God uh, imposed uh, over one heart at a time. That's going to change uh, the culture. Uh, like uh, Tozer said, true revival changes the moral climate of a community or a city or a nation. And, and America has that heritage of revival and of a move of God and uh, the foundation of the Word of God being regarded. But when uh, we look at the landscape now, all that's being abandoned because it's, it's seen as um, outmoded, and uh, uh, as if as, as we're trying to establish some kind of, um, you know, uh, imposing of Christian values on people. Yet at the same time, those very people, like Keller, are preaching this big uh, redeeming culture.
1: But I don't know how you can redeem the world when you're acting just like it. Yeah, redeeming. It's interesting how. They change definitions of words. And they'll say, Yeah, I, I believe the Bible is divinely inspired, and inerrant word of God. And then they go about saying exactly, almost the opposite in many cases, what the Bible actually says. But uh, what they're going to do is give you their interpretation, and then use what they just told you that that's what God said to give legitimacy to their, their liberal ideas, which are anti God.
2: political agenda. Mm -hmm. They're progressive politics, and and that's one of the things that really disgust me about uh, how slick this is, you know, when they are able to use the uh, scripture to add some sense of of biblical validity to these arguments when they're just brazen globalists. Mm -hmm. And uh, back to the uh, pro-life issue, um... You can't be a globalist and embrace sustainability and sustainable populations and and all of those agendas uh, and, uh, and and be a Christian. Those are simply not uh, in any way supported by uh, a biblical view of, of the gospel. And for those, you know, in your um, viewer audience that don't know what a Malthusian is, Um, you know uh, Thomas Malthus believed that once we reached a billion in population that people would starve to death and civilization would collapse well we're we're over 7 billion now and the earth is still here but the narrative is still driven around this Malthusian idea that really was at the heart and soul of of Planned Parenthood and its founder Margaret Sanger and drives the sustainability movement today. So how can Christian ministers embrace globalism? And I'm, and I'm telling you, uh, the, the Lausanne movement has a prayer guide for the global sustainability goals. And how in the world did they get that lost in in believing that they can embrace this stuff? And uh, just the one layer in, you can see that, especially happening in the ecumenical movement. They've embraced some of the most demonic stuff that...
1: The world has to offer, and they had money pushing them, and you know some some parts of the movement go above ground and they kind of get the attention, and then there's some of this Lasan stuff which is a little more subtle, and it's had a long time to kind of uh, simmer and and organize. Fester, and, can we use that word, Fester? Yeah, Fester. <laughs> fester is a good word. Not Uncle Fester, the Adams family, the other Fester. So yeah, and and then the damage they do is kind of like termites. You don't really see it till it's too late. And LaSanne is a perfect example of that. their are perspective classes, they're taught in churches. There's people taking these classes, not even realizing where it came from. And uh, they don't know the history of it. They don't know anything that's going on with it. And they're, they're they're taking, well, it's a Christian thing, and they're taking this stuff because they believe it's right. They don't know any better.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and that's a big part of the entrance of the justice narrative. Uh, back when John Stodd was pressuring... Uh, Billy Graham into it, and we really see that now with the um, uh, with the you know the twofold, two prong strategy of uh, Billy Graham's ministry. Uh, it, it has the social justice and um, uh, the global um, humanitarian focus through uh, Samaritan's Purse, which actually is getting a lot of this funding that it shouldn't be involved in, and then uh, the evangelistic outreach which then uh, becomes more and more uh, ecumenical. Of course we're not going to win any friends by criticizing Billy Graham, but you have to be honest. Uh, things uh, were not in those later years what they had been in the
1: beginning. Yeah and, and uh, you know I, I still like watching those those early Crusades especially because he had a power uh, and, and a, you could tell a real zeal for the Lord but uh, became a victim uh, of trying to maybe being a little popular, chose the wrong friends, trying to get a broader platform. And, uh, you know, I'm no compromise with evil. And it's even a a man like Billy Graham, who who many would consider one of the better men, are susceptible to this. So we all should be concerned that we don't fall into the same thing, that we don't let our associations or our our zeal to make a bigger name, shall we say, to corrupt our principles and and our our faithfulness. Ways with God.
2: Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, Sam, you were asking what I felt was was some of the the areas that, you know, this infiltration took place. Mm -hmm. Of course, we were citing the sign, but, you know, some people have studied about this and, and, uh, you know, seen the fingerprints of this movement, but the church growth movement itself was very animated by. Uh, Bob Buford, who was a, a disciple of Peter Drucker and um, the, his organization, Leadership Network, which actually took over the publication of uh, Christianity Today and then put a lot of supplemental leadership training uh, publications out. And this was all total quality management. And uh, in the end, um, you know, the, uh, those ideas, those very secular ideas, began to. Drive the pragmatism uh, in uh, whatever works, you know, to grow the church numerically and to build mega churches. Uh, and those became the only churches that seemed to matter. We've seen that in the SBC. If you're not a pastor of a mega church, you're not moving up the ladder into any of the, uh, you know, denominational positions. And um, you know, I, ironically, you know, the the 46,000 or so uh, churches that comprise the Southern Baptist Convention. Most of them are not mega churches. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the ideas that were being driven through Leadership Network and all that trucker influence were justice issues uh, at that time and uh, very ecumenical. There was uh, no emphasis put on doctrine. Uh, Mm -hmm. Drucker said doctrine is not important. And then, of course, the ever-present global agenda, uh, which, um, uh, you know, they were both shamelessly uh, involved in and adapting the church toward to the point that um, uh, in the um, early 2000s, um, Buford was boasting that he had primed legions of uh, wealthy Christians to become big-time philanthropists supporting globalism and uh, the world we want. So uh, the church has been engineered to deception.
1: See Peter Wagner, part of the church growth movement, also one of the key players at Lassonde Movement, and uh, really advocated and pushed the Druckerites, the Bob Buford who you just mentioned, and of course Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. Um, Yeah, you can definitely tell the network was set and put together, and uh, it's performed pretty well, actually, to to our detriment.
2: Yeah, Yeah. it has redefined. I mean, they they said they wanted to create a new church paradigm, and they really did. Uh, We're still seeing that, and I don't think we would have this social justice movement threatening and looming so large if uh, if it weren't for the church growth movement sort of laying the groundwork. And actually, the Kern Family Foundation and its pastors network, which has now been renamed the Oikonomia Network, that's overseeing these grants, they're actually supplementing a leadership network in their early days and working together. And of course, on the LGBT issue that I um, know far more about than I care to know, uh, Leadership Network actually uh, was one of the sponsors, one of the top three sponsors of uh, uh, Revoice in 2019. And I don't know if you guys noticed that or not, but Revoice was the story of 2018 and led right up until the 2019 uh, conventions, both of the conservative PCA, uh, Presbyterian Church in America, and the Southern Baptists, but the story just really got buried. And uh, was a lot more revealing in its second um, uh, event uh, as to how deep these roots went into organizations like Leadership Network and uh, the um, uh, Christian counseling that subscribes to the American Psychological Association. So we're seeing the church just lost in a fog that has, um, uh, has steadily redefined its goals and its missions when it has that one... Very clear beacon that we keep talking about, which is hearkening back to Jesus and uh, back to that first love and back to the dedication of uh, preaching Christ, making Him known, and then making disciples.
0: That's a- absolutely right, Thomas. And that's uh, you know that that that's kind of part of behind our name, the the Shining Light Podcast and Shining Light Ministries, is that our our goal is to uh, to shine us a light in in this fog. Uh, and I, I hope everyone's been enjoying what they're, they've been hearing today. And, uh, if you want to find out more from Thomas Littleton, you can go to 30piecesofsilver.org. That's 30piecesofsilver.org. If you want to find out more, uh, on us, you can go to, um, theshininglightministries.com. Once again, it's theshininglightministries.com, but for sure go to 30piecesofsilver.org. Uh, but you know, we mentioned a lot of names here, uh, today, uh, Peter Drucker, um, bob buford uh all, all these these different guys who really created this movement but there, there are a few different names that that come to to my mind that i think that we should maybe be trying to emulate a little bit and uh one of them you mentioned already and that's aw tozer uh but there, there's a another one that that i think uh that you know quite a bit about and i i want to get your perspective on him and that's leonard ravenhill can you tell us a little bit about uh leonard ravenhill
2: well, I was uh, saved in 1978, and by that time Leonard was not—he um, was not as popular as he had been through the through World War II and the early years after the war, and then the conference movements in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but he spent a lot of time at his home in Texas, and uh, he was getting older. And uh, I, I was given a copy of his book. Uh, why Revival Terry's? And I have been a Christian about 18 months and was already growing pretty disillusioned. Uh, I was in the Assemblies of God church at the time because they they didn't have a pipe organ. They actually had a, uh, a guitars and, a, and drums, and I was a you know, 17, 18-year-old kid, so I thought that was great. And <laughs> I loved the church that I was in. It was very evangelistic. And yet they started having all these... Uh, just really bizarre people in uh they got a new pastor and all these uh hyped up guys uh john wesley fletcher was an example he was a uh charismatic guy that uh did a lot of work with the the bakers uh with ptl and it was just very Mm -hmm. disturbing to me because there was no substance you know to it it was like going and having a five-course meal of cotton candy and the um we just went to the fair, by the way, and we still have a big bag of cotton candy.
1: Um, Sam loves cotton my candy. Wife is
2: is um, uh, meeting out to our
1: son lest he eat it all at once. <laughs> but, uh, but I was looking for something of
2: substance, and my brother gave me this book, Why Revival Terries, and it was written in the 40s and 50s. It was um, actually compiled essays that he had written articles for. The alliance witness of which tozer was the editor so tozer and and um and leonard were friends i had already read tozer the pursuit of god which deeply impacted my devotional life uh and really got me back in the scriptures and got me just focusing on longing you know for a deeper relationship and intimacy with god that would really transform me and uh then um I find this, you know, I find Leonard's book, and I knew that Tozer was already in heaven, uh, but I found out that Leonard was still alive. So I found out he was in Texas, and I started, you know, looking for contact and found a number, and this is way back before the internet. And uh, I called that number, and this guy with a British accent answered, and it was Leonard Ravenhill. And
0: I was scared to death. <laughs> and um, I said, um,
2: I want to be an Elijah of God, which is one of the chapters where where the Elijah's of God. And I say now, uh, I meant it, but I didn't know what I meant. Uh, And he says, well, um, why don't you come see me? And he opened his home, as he was, to about 50 people a week at that time and throughout the rest of his life. he He was entertaining about 50 people a week up until his late 80s. And, um, I, so I went to see him, I stood at his, his door. Uh, he had an office in built in what used to be the garage in uh, garden Valley near Lindale, Texas. And, uh, I stood there with my knees knocking as an 18 year old boy thinking he's going to open the door and tell me to get lost. And, uh, that's not what happened. He invited me in and instead of giving me an hour, we spent three hours together and, uh, we prayed together, and he began to disciple me and give me books and uh, recommend, you know, um, you know uh, just a, a real path of devotion and prayer. And he was a godly man. I mean, you could sense the presence of God on him and in his life and his home in a very profound way. And uh, so I was privileged to know him the last 15 years of his life and in his home uh, many times and also um, uh, corresponding with him for that entire 15 years. and have a big collection of books in my very limited library that uh, he sent me. So he played a very important role in shaping me as a Christian. And I told him once I knew I had been called to be an evangelist full time, he said, that's wonderful. Jesus was a street preacher, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it was great encouragement, and um, uh, I had more no respect for him the day he died and the day I attended his funeral than I did even in the beginning, because uh, he just lived what he preached.
0: Wow. What, what was it like praying with a man like uh, Leonard Ravenhill? Because, you know, I my, my only Leonard Ravenhill story, and this is—I uh, I never met him personally, um, but— mm-hmm uh, was one day my wife comes into the office, uh, here and she could tell I had been, been crying and she goes, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? Well, you know, is everything okay? And I said, said, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. And she goes, well, why have you been crying? I said, well, I started listening to this Leonard Ravenhill guy, and it just, it just tears me up every time I listen to him. Uh, just, just so convicting. And one thing he just really hammers on is prayer. What, what is it like to pray with a guy like that?
2: Well, he was far more approachable than you know I anticipated. He was fierce in the pulpit, but on a personal level, he was a very accommodating and and gentle person. And so I was scared deaf death to utter, a, you know, I thought, well, should I pray in King James? I mean, how am I going to impress this guy? <laughs> of course, I mean, one of his most in, uh, in, in, impacting sermons to me was all built around the idea that you can't impress God. You know, I mean, he, I remember him saying that at a last day's uh, sermon, he was speaking at, out at Keith Green's ministry, which was very nearby his home. And he said, um, get this through your head, you can't impress God. And so before I uttered a word, I decided, well, I better just be myself or he's going to see right through me. And, uh, and so I was, I didn't try to wax an elephant or wax eloquent. I just, you know, no King James. I just prayed for my heart. And he wrote a friend of mine, uh, a minister friend of mine, and told them. Um, he said, we could tell that, uh, that Tom has a heart for God and we expect God's going to do Great things through his life, and um, that was just the beginning, you know, of him mentoring me in a way that was, um, you know, very hands-on. And I certainly am not the only one, but he did have time for me. And at times when I would be in uh, gone for months in evangelism, if I hadn't written him in a while or I hadn't called him, he would say, "Where in the world are you? I've been waiting to hear from." You. That was pretty amazing coming from. You know, you your mentor, and, um, and especially a man like him. But, uh, you know, it was a great privilege, and it shaped my life. And I can still read the chapters of Why Revival Terry's, or his last book, Revival God's Way, or the poetry that his son Paul, who I know, put together uh, called Heart Breathings. And I still read those, and it does to me what your wife caught happening to you, Sam caught. Uh, it, it's like uh, the Holy Spirit uses those words to sort of pull the thread that starts unraveling you. And unfortunately, I don't hear a lot of that kind of experience from some of my younger friends in ministry today, where they've encountered the Lord in that kind of uh, unraveling. And um, yet, we see that very biblically, uh, uh, you know, portrayed in the life of the apostles and the disciples walking with Jesus, it, you know, it's, it, it's a tough thing to be discipled because you're going to encounter the cross and your ego is going to be threatened and your dreams and ambitions and all those things are going to be put up to the gaze of, of God's Word and, and, and God's Spirit. And, you know, if you're really walking through with this, you're going to deal with that on a personal level that you'll feel the application of the cross. And you'll be dying to yourself. And then suddenly you realize you're growing.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting, Thomas, when you describe Leonard and, and how approachable he was, and you kind of look at the, the big names today and, and how they have rings of people around them to keep the little guy, if you will, at a distance, um, because it's about their ego and it's about their name and reputation. And uh, whereas Leonard, a godly man, wanted to invest in others, just like Christ himself was, was accessible to everybody, to, to the lowest members of society, and uh, was all about servant and serving and mentoring and discipling, as you mentioned, like Leonard did for you. And uh, But today you don't see that so much. You see people that are they're really too important to take the time to want to talk to people. Yeah, I think that's
2: very, very good insight into kind of, the way the culture has changed. And, you know, to me, you know, like I said, in our God's Voice conference back uh, in February, that it's kind of like these ideas, the ideas of these corporations and banks, you know, they're too big to fail. We have the idea that these guys are too big, too important to be wrong or to be accessible or to be regarded, you know, uh, out of measure, you know. and to a lot of to a lot of degree, they accommodate that and are caught up in that, and that's part of back to the idea of the, the perversion and the drift in church polity that Christianity is operated from this sort of top-down, you know, inaccessible, you know, um, you know. I just I knew a lot of Catholics before I was saved, and then when I started witnessing to them, I saw you know that we had a really desperate problem because their view of of Christian authority or authority in what they perceived to be the church was all centered around a man and I was just never oriented that way even in my approach to uh, Leonard as a mentor he would never allow that and I never felt compelled to give that kind of uh, unquestioned obedience but that's why I brought that up as one of the three issues that's really hurting us because we can look up to these men but they have feet of clay, and they know that, and they want us to know that, if they're godly men. Mm-hmm. But for these guys who are demanding unquestioned authority, or they think that they're in another echelon, um, that's not what you see reflected in, in Jesus and his approach to the apostles or the apostles' ministry. Paul said he was the chief of sinners, and that he considered the apostles, you know, the lowest on the rung, I mean, a gazing stock and example and put on display, and um, and of course, their persecutions, I think, kept them
0: humble. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: These guys aren't dealing with a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. All they deal with is Shining Light podcasts and these 30 pieces of silver bloggers, you know, <laughs> holding them accountable, and we're just like gnats, you know, on a, on a water buffalo or something. They're just a nuisance, so.
1: Well, you, you know, in, in your p- recent personal experience, they'll try to ignore you if they can, but if your your truth is biting a little bit too deep, then they will send minions after you to try to um, discourage you, cut you down, all these dirty little tricks, as you well know, Thomas, because it's uh, you you've been kind of the, a target of this sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and it, it does get pretty hairy at times. Um, and sometimes people think that I'm too aggressive when I go go at some of these issues, but a lot of times people don't realize what's going on, you know, behind the scenes. And so I think when you're up against the cabal, uh, you have to have enough John the Baptist in you to just, <laughs> even if they've got you locked down in prison, you're still going to preach the truth.
1: And you can't fear man or you're going to be a slave. Amen. And
2: uh, this, uh, And we can't be a servant of God if we're going to be serving, you know, the opinion of man. And, you know, Paul made those things crystal clear. And, you know, I'm often told you shouldn't be withstanding these men of authority. I said, well, Paul withstood Peter to the face because he was wrong. And, um, you know, and and people say that Christians shouldn't be talking about us. Well, those who feared the Lord during times of spiritual decline and idolatry, they spoke often to one another, and God wrote a book of (laughs) of remembrance from their conversation. And they were marked because they had concern and were discussing that concern. So honestly, you know, these guys are just, uh, they have a beef because they're being thin-skinned. But I say, don't come into my church and my denomination and try to be a change agent to redefine my faith and my family and then be thin-skinned about it. At least man up and, you know, and deal with it, somebody calling you out on it. But, um, you know, they want to have the only word, not the last word, but the only word uh, if they're in these positions and they're compromised. But I can tell you uh, very quickly, when I was removed from the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, uh, in Dallas, I was getting ready to go for Brandon House as a reporter again to the Birmingham Convention, which turned out to be where – critical race theory and intersectionality were affirmed and revoiced was not condemned. And uh, so I was going as a reporter that was completely unresolved and just standing out there about my removal in 2018 at Dallas, the final word from the executive committee of the Southern Baptist convention, that's the top, you know, echelon of the CEO and the CFO and everybody um, and the ERLC was that I was some kind of a creeper who was lurking around slumped over in a chair glaring at the women of the ERLC (laughs) and making them feel uncomfortable and then uh the they said that I had told their boss they had overheard me tell their boss I was his nemesis so they felt threatened and told the police that they wanted me removed when, in fact, the police report and the, the PR guys at the city hall uh, found that, that it had actually been reported that I had actually threatened to kick someone's rear end, and that's why they were, they were asked to remove me. So now I live under the shadow of what they did, and then the accusation sort of shaping a Me Too narrative. And I'm some kind of a creepy guy that made the women of the EROC feel uncomfortable and was some, had made some verbal threat to their boss. I think the only thing I said to Moore was, how are you? Nice to meet you. And I'm probably your worst critic, but it's nothing personal. <laughs> and uh, that's that's not a threat. But this is the kind of stuff, if you're going to live on the edge, like I say, you have to get of man up and deal with it. But uh, look what the guys before us have gone through. Look what Jeremiah suffered. And... Ezekiel and Isaiah and um, and a host of those remembered in uh, Hebrews 11 uh, Faith's Hall of Fame Uh, these guys have paid a price so what is it if we make the wrong people mad Um, we should expect it as uh, part of our heritage
1: Well what was really interesting when these accusations against you, you just mentioned that they said you did these things and threats and all this other thing to anybody that knows you (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's quite laughable because, you know, Sam and I have had the, fort, uh, the good fortune of, of getting to meet you and know you and spent some time with you. You've been over to my house. And you are, and this is not just buttering Thomas Littleton. This is, this is the absolute truth. You're one of the mm-hmm. kindest, gentlest, most gracious men I've, I've ever met. And uh, just like you described Leonard Ravenhill, well, his mentoring has rubbed off on you, my friend, because you very much sound to be in the character that Leonard Ravenhill, the man that he was. So uh, when I hear the sorts of things that, you, that they put up against you, there's absolutely no way that that's the man I know. And so, uh, yeah, that, it's it's laughable.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I, I just echo those comments. I, w- w- when you were saying it there, uh, Thomas, I was just laughing because I'm going, boy, if if anybody who actually knows you hears those comments, that I mean,
1: You're the last guy that's uh, yeah, going to be doing that. It, it, exactly. Now but me it's... on the other, but never mind. Not, not it's not about me. <laughs>
2: Anything of, of virtue in me, it, it's Jesus. It is not me, and and we all know that about ourselves. And uh, that's the glory of the gospel that we embrace, and that has changed us because we've been partakers of the divine nature, and we have the high calling that Paul talked about, you know, in in Ephesians four, that we should walk after after Christ, and to walk in newness of life, to walk in this new man to put away the old man, and and uh, the responsibility of the Christian is to reflect the fragrance of Christ in a way that's tangible, and we can only do that when we're living uh, in obedience and are really laying down our lives, because as long as we're in the way, um, you know, people are going to see us for who we are in and of ourselves, and they can't see Jesus, but uh, I keep going back to it. Christ in us is the hope of glory. If there, there are no real Christians. There are only people in whom Christ really lives. And that's our hope. And, and that's what we need to be growing toward and discipling people toward. And you know, I don't hear much of that reflected in any of this, uh, the justice narratives or the, you know, the gospel coalition rhetoric. I hear a lot of interest in theology, but you know, you can be um, you can be a really good Pharisee uh, with uh, the, with uh, a lot of theology and no grace, and you know that's the worst fate that could befall us as believers—that we end up being driven, you know, by our uh, idealism and our theology and be empty uh, and lacking in the most uh, simple, you know, of Christian graces and. Honestly, you know, the problem in the church today is rooted in leaders who are selling out Mm -hmm. the church, and hence my blog, 30 Pieces of Silver. You know, it was inspired by that idea, because uh, they're not the first ones to do it, and they won't be the last, but in fact, that's how all this is happening. I mean, money is flooding the church, and people are willing to hold loosely, if at all, to their... Convictions and principles, and they see another set of values that uh, they're willing to embrace.
0: Well, I, th- I think of uh, A. W. Tozer's quote where he said, um, uh, the, de- "The Satan is the greatest theologian and a devil still." And so, people can be mm-hmm. full of theology and empty of Christ. And the the other thing that came to my mind uh, when you were you were talking about this is D. L. Moody uh, when he went to go speak at a. A conference one time or, or a conference was trying to decide who was going to speak and somebody suggested Deal Moody and he had spoken uh, the, the couple of years before that also and one preacher gets up and says, do you think uh, Deal Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? Why is he the only one that can preach it at, at this this meeting? And somebody responded to him uh, to this this critic and they said, it's not that we think that D.L. Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. <laughs> and I, I think that's, uh, that's what we need to be striving for, is to, uh, to know Christ, to know Him more, to, to be in our Bible, to know our Bible, to pray, uh, to be evangelizing and making disciples, just as you uh, brought forth uh, on the, this podcast here, Thomas. Uh, in, in, any closing thoughts here?
2: i would just say you know again that the answer is very simple and a return to the word of god and to god himself a return to christ and an embrace of uh, of that ancient path and that's what god told jeremiah stand in the way and look for the uh, ancient path for the old way the good way and walk in it and of course that's where we're going to find the path that leads to life and uh, that's, you know, it's going to be our undoing in the most healthy sort of way if we follow that old path and then we make room for the, the life of Christ we're talking about and us individually and collectively. And I can tell you the church does need revival, and I know some people don't re- believe in revival and revival culture, but revival, as Ravenhill said, as a true revivalist preacher, uh, is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And um, we need God to move in our midst, whatever you want to call it, Uh, and what we're doing isn't working. The Church is in steep decline, and we're not seeing people saved, and yet the world around us is more desperately needy than it's ever been. And if we're going to follow through, then we have to share the heart of God. And Part of that heart is a care for all these lost sheep who are like sheep without a shepherd. And we have no want of Christian leaders, but we do have a, a desperate need for shepherds.
0: Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Thomas.
2: Well, I appreciate it. I, I love and appreciate you guys and your fellowship and the Lord and your work with the podcast and your guests and
1: all that you guys are doing. And I just look forward to continuing to work with you. Well, we are we are the team, aren't we? I mean, uh, you and, and us and there's a few others um, who who don't compromise. And uh, it's not about us. It's not about our names. Um, we hope that our words are, are are from God and biblical, and and that's what we we push. And uh, those that are preaching error, we're, we're going to point that out. But but also we need to point when we point out error, we need to point out the truth. And we are certainly. Very blessed to have you, um, uh, who we count amongst our friends and our allies in this in this fight in these mm-hmm. latter days.
0: Yeah, thank you, so well,
2: We've gotta we've gotta do what he called us to do. I mean, we want to be found faithful, and uh, we're not responsible for the results, but we are responsible for obeying.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Onward,
1: Christian soldiers.
0: That's right. Well. Uh, for the Shiny Light Podcast, this is Pastor Sam.
1: And Patrick, no compromise with Evil Wyatt.
0: And make sure you go to 30piecesofsilver.org. Once again, that's 30piecesofsilver.org.
1: Fantastic research there. I'll throw that in. One of the best researchers I've ever known, Thomas. So
0: have a great day. You hear him talking about evolution.